Well, happy Halloween, everybody. Uh, this is my awkward, tall, white guy costume. I got it on Amazon. Got a good deal on it. Um, my, my wife, Emily, and I have been married for uh, 13, 13 years in a row. Um, and uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you missed our anniversary, we're still accepting gifts. But um, one of the interesting things that happens when you get married is that you have this uh, kind of fresh perspective on the family that you come from. Because uh, y- your spouse uh, has no history with your family, and so they have this interesting kind of blank slate perspective on your family. Uh, and as a result, there will undoubtedly be, be, be things that are picked up on that to your spouse come across as different, perhaps a bit strange, or just flat out weird. But to you, you, it's, it's, it's normal, right? Because it's just the water that your family swims in. Well, whatever normal is, uh, my family is not that. We're just weird. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, and uh, just got a lot of craziness and brokenness going on. And so there was a little bit of anxiousness about our wedding day because all of these people who um, had not seen each other in years, who didn't like each other, like my mom's side of the family, didn't like my dad's side of the family, and vice versa, they're all going to be kind of coming together on this one day. Um, so there are all these dynamics going on, very different people, some of whom didn't really like each other. Uh, there were people from Emily's conservative, independent, fundamental Baptist church who probably didn't like that we were going to have dancing and alcohol. Uh, they probably thought uh, Emily was marrying a heretic and backsliding in her faith. And all of these people and all these dynamics were going to converge on this one day for this one event. So this could, this could spell disaster. But for just one day, everyone agreed to put aside all of their opinions, all of their likes and dislikes, and all their feelings about some of the other people who were there for the sake of something much greater and more significant. Our wedding day. The marriage of Jordan to a girl who was clearly way out of his league. And honestly, it, it was a magical day. And it's one thing to pull that off for one day or one event. But to commit to that on a day in and day out basis is something altogether different. And yet part of what it means to be the church is that we are willing to lay aside our disagreements and differences for the sake of something much greater, the risen Jesus and his kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. And our our text this morning speaks to this way of being in the world. Uh, We are in our third week in the book of Philippians, uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. This letter is often grouped with some of Paul's other letters and what is known as the prison letters. And so if you have a Bible or a device or a papyrus scroll, go ahead and pull that out. We left off last week at the end of chapter 1. So we're going to look at uh, Philippians 1.27 through Philippians 2.11. So the last part of uh, chapter 1, in verses 27 through 30, Paul exhorts the church in Philippi, that whether he is with them or he is absent, that they must stand firm in the, middle, in the midst of their opponents. And that them being of one mind, one body, and one spirit is both their salvation as well as the key to warding off these opponents. And we're going to pick it up in uh, Philippians 2, verse 1 through verse 11. Here's what it says. If then there is any encouragement in Christ... Any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
do nothing from selfish ambition or, or, or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is, that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, to the glory of God the Father. These are some powerful, powerful rich verses that we'll spend the rest of our life trying to sit in and unpack. But Paul begins chapter 2 by saying that if we have this shared life together in King Jesus, if it has truly begun to take root in us, then what would make me full of joy, church in Philippi, is that you would be one. If this church community is being shaped and led by the risen Messiah, then the natural, genuine byproduct of that would be that they are one, that they are united around something far more significant than their differences. And actually, it's not something, it's someone, Jesus himself. The, the operating assumption in the text is that the church is struggling or soon will struggle with disagreement and division. Paul is keenly aware that when you gather broken people together, even when that gathering is centered on Jesus, there will undoubtedly be disagreement and perhaps division. There's a famous Jewish saying that if you have two rabbis, you will have three opinions. Now, Paul is not saying, please be united, please be one, it would make me feel so much better. He's not a parent pleading with his children to play nice with one another so mommy and daddy can be happy. He's pleading for oneness because of the one who is at the center of their oneness. The stakes are too high. This unity and oneness will cost them something. He, he goes on to give the reason, the, the fuel, the engine behind this call for the church to be one. Uh, verses 6 through 11, those beautiful verses that we just read, give us the framework and context of what unity will cost them. Scholars suggest that these verses were most likely a hymn that was sung in the earliest days of the church to remind them of who Jesus was and what he had done. Now, these verses lay out in beautiful language the who, the what, and the why behind this unity and oneness. The who being Jesus, the the what being the self-emptying or self-giving humility of Jesus, and the why being that just as the self-emptying of Jesus ultimately led to him being raised to new life, our self-emptying and humility will lead to new life in oneness as the church. Paul is saying that if the Messiah humbled himself in this way, then why would we think that any why would we think that those who are in the Messiah would not have to do the same? And I think Paul's message to the church in Philippi 
is the same message that he would give to us as Missio Day Church in 2021. A call to unity and oneness. True Christ-centered unity will ask a lot from us. It will reveal the things that we hold on to with a white-knuckled grip that perhaps we're even unaware of. And it, will, and it will show us what we will need to let go of for the sake of something much bigger and more powerful. Now, we would all nod our heads in agreement on the importance of unity. But oftentimes in practice, we can tend to default to our own opinions and ideologies versus what is at the center of our unity. Namely, what is laid out in Philippians, in the Philippian hymn of verses 6 through 11. This call to oneness and unity is not a flash in the pan, or it's not a call that's only given to us by Paul. That rhymed. You're welcome. Um, remember when Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17? He doesn't pray that they would all agree. He doesn't pray that they would all have the same ministry strategy. He doesn't even pray that they would all get matching tattoos. And if you have matching tattoos, there is no judgment here. He prays that they would be one, just as he and the Father are one. Like the church of Philippi, we as Missio Dei Church have a calling by King Jesus to be a witness of the good news to our community. But I think our witness will lose its power if it's coming from a church community of division and disunion. Our witness is far more legitimate and powerful when the world can see that it comes from a group of people who are different, diverse, who disagree, and yet who have chosen to unite around something far greater and more significant than themselves and the opinions and ideologies that each person holds. That would look completely foreign to our culture, like an entire new way of being human. And I think it will ultimately draw people into want to know more, but most likely want to experience it for themselves. Uh, a few years ago, when we got back from Young Life Camp, um, we were having post-camp campaigners, kind of the small group Bible study. And a group of the guys said, hey, after campaigners, let's go to a movie. So all the guys went to a movie, and uh, we had the whole row uh, of guys just filling this whole row. We actually had the whole theater to, to ourselves, so the inappropriate jokes were just flying. It was beautiful. Um, so we watched this movie, and we're coming out, and we're in the lobby. And um, one of the guys who was in our group, he saw a friend from school uh, who didn't come with us to camp, and he's talking to him. And I kind of was looking at this friend, and the friend was looking at our group of guys with this kind of puzzled look, but a very sort of intrigued, uh, in- intriguing look. Because, you see, our group of guys had kids who came from very wealthy families. It had kids who came from very poor families. It had white kids. It had black kids. It had kids who were really popular and kids who were not so popular. It had kids who were very athletic and kids who were definitely not athletic. All together, laughing, telling stories. And it looked so foreign to this this guy's friend who didn't come with us to camp. And nowhere else on the planet would these group of kids come together. But because they had the shared experience of Jesus at camp, it's what brought them together. And they were defined by that experience with Jesus that they had. And nowhere else on the planet would that happen. And uh, this kid's friend who didn't experience that was like, I've never seen this before. And he was almost like, why why are you hanging out with all those people? But I could tell it was something completely foreign. 
this unity and oneness that Paul is calling for is not just unity for the sake of unity, so we can either feel warm and fuzzy inside or we can feel good in our own kind of confirmation bias echo chamber. Unity for unity's sake already exists in our culture, right? You gotta wear masks, you don't have to wear masks. You gotta get vaccinated, you don't have to get vaccinated. It's Belichick, it's Brady, right? Like, we all center around ourselves around these things. Now, some of the things, uh, some of the things that, 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 uh, that are, uh, the people unite around are very worthy and meaningful causes, some of which we need to be a part of. But there comes a point when this form of unity will lose its meaning, purpose, and energy. Because ultimately, it's built upon a faulty foundation. If, if there's even a foundation at all. The unity and oneness that Paul is calling for is not unity for the sake of unity. It is unity for the sake, for, for the sake of the one who has made this unity possible. It is unity and oneness because of the one who is at the center of it. And he is the one who has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Remember Acts 2? The church at Pentecost? This is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual group of people who, are, who chose to be defined by their center, this risen Jesus, and not their boundaries. Not that their boundaries meant nothing to them, but that their boundaries didn't mean everything to them. What meant everything to them was Jesus. And let's not forget who Jesus called. Jesus calls Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector both to follow him. You can't get any more politically polarized than that. One, the, uh, the tax collector, has aligned himself with the Roman Empire... And he's using that alignment to make money off the backs of his own people. The other, a zealot, has taken a sworn oath to kill any Roman soldier. It would be like Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson both being called to join the same team. Or Rush Limbaugh and Bill Maher to both agreeing to be a part of the same movement. In the minds of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, there was something that was far more significant than their political, social, and religious ideologies. And again, it wasn't something, it was someone. Jesus had so captured the heart and mind of both Simon and Matthew that even their differing political views had to bow to this Messiah who was becoming king. And my question to us is, are we ready to do the same? Are our differing political and social ideologies willing to bow to King Jesus? How much are we willing to put aside for the sake of oneness? How willing are we to lay aside disagreements and even frustrations for the sake of unity? Are we ready and willing for our differing opinions and ideologies to bow the knee to King Jesus? Just like Simon, just like Matthew, just like the church in Pentecost, just like those high school guys that had that experience with Christ. And there's a part of this conversation on unity and oneness that I find really discouraging. One of the unfortunate byproducts of the Protestant Reformation, I think, is that, that has really been prevalent, especially in America, is the quick willingness to leave a church whenever there's disagreement. 
In fact, during the Reformation itself, many a denomination were birthed out of a handful of people in a community who disagree and went off and started the new denomination, right? In America, the statistics tell us that 95% of church growth is church transfer, meaning somebody leaving one church and joining another. So that means that only 5% of church growth in America is people who didn't know Christ come to know him and join a church community. That's heartbreaking. Now, I'm not suggesting that the reasons people leave churches are always trivial and minor. There are, of course, completely legitimate and valid reasons to leave one church for another. But I do sometimes wonder, if we were able to get a list of all the people who left one church for another, and we investigated the reasons... I'm curious if some of those reasons might seem a bit small when juxtaposed against Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Sometimes I think that we can major in the minors and as a result, leave one church for another. And honestly, I think it's the easy thing to do. It's the easy road. It's much harder to stay and work it out in the context of community. Now, I am fully aware that when I say majoring in the minors, that my minor might be your major, and your major might be my minor. But the point is that we would work together, that we would work through those things together in community. I by no means want to diminish every difference, every difference or disagreement as a minor or insignificant thing. But my hope is that we could all agree to stay at the table together and work through it in community for the sake of the one who calls us to this unity. Perhaps we need to care less about who is right and care more about what is right. And the only way we can learn what is right is when we work through it together in community. Friends, I'll, I'll be honest with you. There are a lot of things about Missio Day Church that drive me nuts. There are things that I disagree with in Missio Day Church. And it may even surprise you. There are things in Young Life that drive me nuts. And we have our fundraiser next week. Come and give a lot of money, please. There's things in Young Life that I strongly disagree with. But I choose to lay those aside for what I believe is something much bigger, more powerful, and more beautiful than those disagreements. And that doesn't make me better than anyone else in this room. In fact, I am embarrassed by the number of times that I have given into the, t- 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 given into the temptation of putting my disagreements and, uh, and differences above unity. We are all on the same playing field. But we must all commit to be side by side arm in arm with one another, working through these things together in community and not take the easy road that leads to the exit sign. We are at our best when we can each take our differences and disagreements and put them through the filter of Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And my guess is that a lot of them will end up looking really small in comparison to the grandeur and beauty of the self-emptying humility and love that is present in those words. So, how might you individually and us collectively foster unity and oneness at Missio Dei Church? 
Well, I'll give you a hint. The answer is not from me. I think the answer is in verse 2. That we would individually and collectively, one, be of the same mind. Two, that we would have the same love. And three, that we would be in full accord or one accord. How might we be of the same mind? Our minds can oftentimes be a breeding ground for unhealthy and divisive thoughts. Our thought life can be a real battleground. When we see someone that we disagree with or maybe we have issues with, we we begin to think these negative thoughts. We kind of roll our eyes in our head at this person. But Paul says that we must be a people who are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let's invite the spirit of the living God to renew our thought life about one another. We must be people who strive towards assuming the best of other people in our thoughts. Assuming that the person we might disagree with has good intentions. Let's think well of one another, Missio Dei Church. Just because our thoughts of someone else take up real estate in our minds, but we don't say anything, doesn't mean that it affects us any less. Let's be people who think well of one another. Secondly, that we would have the same love. That we would strive to be people that no matter who you are, what your theologically, theological or political leanings might be, that no matter what your opinions are, what your likes and dislikes might be, that we could strip all of those things away and say, actually, we all have the same love. There was one translation of verse 2 that says, hold on to the same love. What a powerful picture. But in order to hold on to the same love, we have to be willing to let go of other things. No matter who you are or what you uh, disagree with, at the end of the day, I think that we could all stack hands on this one reality. We know and love Jesus, and we want Jesus to be known and loved. And the rest is side conversation. We know and love Jesus, and we want Jesus to be known and loved. We must all work towards a way of being together in community that lifts up and focuses on the love that we have in common. Jesus, his lordship, and his kingdom breaking into our community. And lastly, that we would, uh, that we would be in full accord. This does not mean that we try to fill up a Honda Accord. Because Accord, it's delayed humor. When you're on your way home, you're going to break up laughing, I tell you. What would our church look like if we would all strive to be people of connection and not disconnection? People who would strive to restore broken relationships in this body versus allowing unnecessary division. That when people who are a part of this community begin to frustrate us, annoy us, or disappoint us, that instead of acting upon those things, we would first look inwardly to our own brokenness, perhaps how we have frustrated, annoyed, or disappointed others. Let us model together as a community dying to ourselves for the sake of restored relationships with others. That asking for forgiveness would be a common thing in our community. Does this mean that we should just tolerate and accept unhealthy behavior on the part of any and everyone in our church? Absolutely not. We need to do everything we can to call out unhealthy behavior and take steps towards wholeness and restoration. But what it does mean 
is that as a result of who Jesus is and what he has done, the people sitting next to you right now and those sitting around you, they are all your sisters and brothers, image bearers of the triune God, who is himself not divided into three separate deities, but is united as one. And because of that, we too are called to be one. But because we are all broken and we have wounds and we have our own stories that we bring into this, it will mean that working towards oneness will be difficult, frustrating, beautiful, joyous, annoying, tiring, healing, restoring, revealing, saddening, adventurous, but most of all hopeful. All of these held together in tension just like holding together both the pain of the cross and the victory of resurrection, the sorrow of death and the joy of new life. As a pious Jew, Paul undoubtedly prayed the Shema, which is a prayer that God's people have prayed for thousands of years. And it begins with these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And I think Paul might add, Therefore, you also must be one. Friends, may we continue to stay at the table of oneness. Because if we do, the Lord will provide for our souls a delight in the richest affair. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are one. And you long for your people to be one. And I pray, Lord, that we, as Missio Dei Church, would be known as a community that are one. In the midst of our disagreements, in the midst of our differing uh, ideologies and thoughts on different issues, that we would be united around the one Messiah, Jesus who has reconciled all things to himself. Not because our disagreements and thoughts don't mean anything, but they don't mean everything, Lord. You, Jesus, are everything. You are Lord. I pray that we would be people who actively look inwardly to our own brokenness. That we would invite your spirit to continue to come and heal us, that we might be people of healing in our own community. And I pray that as people come around Missio Dei Church, that they would see something so different and unique from our culture and divisive world that we live in. Our our world is longing for hope. They're longing for a new way of being human. And you, Jesus, offer that. And I pray that we just be people who point to the reality of who you are. So Lord, may our church be one as you are one with the Father and Spirit so that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. As we uh, turn to the table right now, we remember that as Jordan has just spoken to us, that the foundation of our unity is not in our efforts, not in our personality. It's not even in our niceness. It doesn't require a mellow or easygoing personality.
that doesn't require acquiescence or ambivalence about things that matter. The foundation of our unity, as Jordan just said, is the finished work of Christ on the cross, his perfection in life, in death, in his resurrection, purchased our unity for us. It's a, it's a matter of historical fact that we have been made one in Christ. And that was accomplished in Christ, through Christ, by his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of God, and his coming again in spirit into the body of Christ, his assembled people. Here are a few words about this from the Lord in various of Paul's letters. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body and were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body doesn't consist of one member but many, and the members don't have all the same function. And so the, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. For in Christ you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. You are all one. In Christ Jesus. As we come to this table, we rejoice in the Lord. We rejoice in his death. We rejoice in his life. We rejoice in his life on the throne and his life in us. We're those empowered by Christ. We're empowered by Christ to live in unity with one another. The world doesn't have this power, and we don't have it apart from him. There are others, as Jordan talked about, who band together for a time for one thing or another. But spiritual unity, present and eternal unity, is part of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And our part is to choose to embrace what Christ has accomplished for us through the cross. So as we take this bread, we take this cup, we remember the Lord Jesus until he comes. We rejoice in the bread that speaks of the Lord's body broken for us. We rejoice in the cup of the new covenant that speaks of our new life together as sons and daughter of God made sure by the Lord's shed blood. So if you will take this cup, which you do not have because I forgot to ask someone to put them around. I'll wait. It'll take me that long to get the says this, I'll read it while we're waiting. Put on then, as those who are one in Christ Jesus, God's chosen one, put on kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Take this bread and we eat it together. Take and eat. 